Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. I mean, there was a lot of I'm sorry's. There was a lot of tears, um, and there was a lot of talking about Down syndrome and not talking about Aurora when she was born. So when we had her at that original hospital, I just felt like I was never introduced to my daughter. Welcome to Motherbirth. We help women awaken the confidence that is already within. This is a space for vivid, inspiring birth stories meaningful advice from guest experts, and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey everybody, it's Lauren Melissa here, Mother Birth, and we are excited today to have a guest. Miss um, Amanda Cunningham will be sharing with you her story of her experience in becoming a mother and kind of what it was like to have some unexpected news. Um, We ask that you guys listen with open hearts, and this will be our first time sharing this type of story. Amanda, why don't you go ahead and um, share a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Amanda Cunningham. I'm located in West Virginia, and I have two children. I have a son who will be five this September, and I have a daughter, Aurora. We call her by her nickname, Rory, who is 14 months old. Cute. I love Rory. (laughs) It's such a cute name. Thanks. So, yeah. So why don't you kind of rewind back to before Owen was born and tell us kind of what your transition to motherhood was like? Did you always plan on becoming a mother? Did you, um, you know, was Owen a planned pregnancy? How did that all unfold for you? Okay. So my husband's a little bit older than me, about four years. And when we got married, we had in a family planning conversation, you know, when, when did we want to start having our children? And he wanted to venture down that path before he turned 30. So mm-hmm. I opened myself up to that. And I wouldn't say that Owen was planned, but he wasn't, um, planned against either. If that makes sense. Yeah. So he arrived, I found out that I was pregnant, um, shortly after new year's. And then he arrived nine months later and he was amazing. I had a very um, euphoric pregnancy with him. I'm, I chalk it up to hormones now that I know a lot more, but back then it it felt super special. Mm. That's, that's such a wonderful experience to have. I feel like, you know, we've, we've talked on the show even recently about how it feels like, you know, more and more people are having uncomfortable pregnancies and, and feeling, you know, these, having these experiences that, that are not overwhelmingly positive. And so it's always lovely to hear from someone that shares that their pregnancy was a really positive and, you know, an empowering experience, even on a physical level. Yeah. When I was pregnant with him, I, the best way I could describe it is I felt like I had a knowing of who he was very early on. Um, Mm. About five weeks into the pregnancy, I felt like I knew his name was supposed to be Owen and just had this really deep connection to him. Um, Mm. And that's something that, was different with Aurora. When I was pregnant with her, I almost felt like she was hiding herself from me her entire, most of my pregnancy early on, especially, which as you'll find out later, it makes a lot of sense. 
Um, Mm. but with, with Owen, I did have that euphoric pregnancy experience. And then I has suffered from postpartum after I delivered him and it actually came on very quickly. So that's why I made the comment about hormones because it felt very much like I was high on the testosterone of him. And then when he exited me, I had this, I had this crash, um, that lasted quite some time because it was my first pregnancy and I wasn't able to identify what I was experiencing. So I, I carried that experience for much longer than I should have. Hmm. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the crew. (laughs) It's just, it's, it's just something that is so, so common, especially like you said that first time around, because you just don't have any context for what you're experiencing. And, you know, yeah. that's a big part of why we do this because we want women to have these, these markers, these, you know, these sort of little things that trigger in their mind, like, oh my gosh, you know, I think I know what this might be, even though I haven't experienced it before. Like this is, you know, I, I don't, you know, I shouldn't be experiencing this. I definitely shouldn't be experiencing it alone. You know, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, and just for your listeners to give them some you know, feelings that they can maybe grab onto if they have this experience. Mine was an intense loneliness. Everybody's is different. Mm-hmm. It manifests different from everyone, but I had a indescribable intense loneliness after I had my son and it lasted, um, eight months pretty heavily. Um, and then when nursing, um, started to slow down because he decided he was done, that's when I felt like I was coming out of the woods per se. Um, mm. And then it was, I'd say, 18 months until I fully felt like I was back to myself. Hmm. Yeah. What kind of support systems or structures did you have access to? And and at any point, did you kind of realize what was going on and then get support that really made a difference and kind of helped you to move through that? Early on, I, I did know that it probably wasn't normal that I was feeling the, the sadness and the loneliness that I was feeling. So I did talk to um, someone who had shared with me that they had a similar experience and they connected me with a healthcare provider. And I can remember I called and I made the appointment and then it came time to go and I talked myself out of going and I didn't go. And so then I suffered mm-hmm. longer. But then it got to a point where I was like, like I said, coming out of the woods and I had some clarity of the fact that this was going on too long and wasn't normal. And that's when I took personal action and I went back to my OBGYN and talked to them. They actually prescribed me to progesterone. She said that my progesterone levels had just crashed and my body wasn't producing them at the level that they should. And so I Mm -hmm. took three months of that and I was sleeping again. My moods were stable. It just seemed to like recalibrate. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. That you could kind of figure out. There was a lot of fear to have another pregnancy. That's why there's such a gap um, between my kids. I would have liked to have my second child when Owen was two, but I was just trying to like get my mind right to potentially face that experience again, because it, it, frankly, Mm -hmm. it was just, it was hard on me. It was hard on our marriage. Um, So we were trying to, you know, arm up (laughs) to go into that, that battle again. And uh, that's why there was that gap. Yeah. It is really daunting to think about facing that again. I, I definitely resonate with that. I had a really difficult postpartum period with my first son and it, it took us, you know, four years to get to that point where we were willing to try it again. And, you know, I, 
I, that was the thing I was the most concerned about was what that postpartum transition was going to look like. And it's just, it feels like such a wild card. Like even when you prepare and even when you have awareness and you, and you have personal experience, it just feels like, you know, especially because on a lot of levels, it's, it really is hormonal. It's not, you know, you, there are lots of things you can do to support yourself in the postpartum period and so many things that can ease that transition. But on some level you, you go through a hormonal shift that is, you know, on, you can't, you can't change that. No, it's out of your control for sure. And I think knowing that is empowering, you know, Mm -hmm. knowing like I am not bringing this, I'm not choosing to have this feeling, but I'm going to take actions that help me function why I have these feelings. Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the time when I was going through it with Owen, I couldn't acknowledge the feelings. So therefore I couldn't function within them because I was just so like, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling this way. Instead of saying, okay, I feel this way. Now let's function while feeling that way. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever had really heard someone articulate it that way. Cause I feel like not being able to control it is a lot of, brings a lot of anxiety to people's feelings. Mm-hmm. But I, I do like that kind of, it's almost like a surrender, a surrender and an embrace at the same time where you're kind of saying, mm-hmm. I've, I, I have identified this, this is, these are the things that I'm doing and I'm walking in that. I think that's really, could be really empowering. Yeah. Because you have to walk through it with anything. If you, if you fight it the whole time, you're going to stay in that place. So if you just choose to walk through it, I'm going to feel these feelings, but I'm going to continue to walk through it and take the actions I need to take to heal. Then you'll get to the other side. And that's what I didn't do for so many months because I was just sitting there you know, not acknowledging what I was feeling. Mm. Yeah. That's really, really powerful to when, when we don't do that, it's so crippling. It really, like you said, it, it prevents us from moving forward. It prevents us from growing. If we, if we don't just accept, (laughs) you know, and, Uh and surrender, like Laura said, that's really the perfect word for it. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, having this sense of of really connecting and and knowing Owen so early in your pregnancy and having this very, very connected euphoric pregnancy with him. And then, you know, probably felt like a very stark contrast to have such a difficult postpartum period when you, you know, may, may on even unconscious levels really have attributed, you know, the feelings that you had during that pregnancy towards him you know, assuming that those would continue, did the experience that you had postpartum affect your ability to bond with him? Did, how did it contrast with the experience and connection you had with him during your pregnancy? Um, I did bond with him to the point that I wasn't like accepting help. Um, Mm -hmm. I was very, like, I was very fearful for his life irrationally. You know, I can remember the first night we came home, i desperately needed to sleep. As you know, in the hospital, you don't get any sleep after you deliver a baby. Um, and we came home and I made Evan sit up all night and hold him in a rocking chair beside me. And I would wake up literally like every 20 to 30 minutes and be like, is he alive? Is he alive? It was just so rational. And that, that carried on for a long time in terms of being afraid something was going to happen to him and feeling like Mm -hmm. I was the only one who could take care of him. Mm -hmm. But the separation that I experienced, um, that brought on the loneliness was like, and not to, I mean, I'm a spiritual person, so this is how I interpreted it. But I felt like something left me, like, you know, in my experience, Mm -hmm. 
I, I believe in God and I believe that he's with me. And I felt like that sense, that spirit had left me. Um, and that felt very real when we first came home from the hospital and then that started mm. to subside. So it sounds very dramatic, but that's how it felt. Um, because I did have that deep connection with Owen and it went away, um, in turn after he was delivered. Hmm. But I did bond yeah. with him and I did want to take care of him and I wanted to be the only one who did it. Um, and you know, he was sweet and wonderful and all the things a new baby is. He didn't sleep at all, which that definitely didn't help me out. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about this. So then, um, another woman, just in the idea of, we were talking about that when you're having a hard time really identifying your feelings or admitting them to yourself, but some, some of it is the circumstances that you're under. You kind of kind of excuse away all kinds of feelings because you are exhausted and this is all new. Mm -hmm. And how do you know what is like, you're saying that extreme loneliness or depression versus just exhaustion and a new role. So, and Mm -hmm. there's so many people telling you what you should do in that new period of time. You know, so it's like you're weighing against all of that. It's like people tell me I should be out and about and I should be doing X, Y, Z, but the anxiety is so strong that you don't feel like you can do those things. And then I feel like it compounds your frustration with yourself because it's Mm -hmm. like you even have people outside of you saying that you should be behaving in a certain manner, but you can't bring yourself to do it. Right. Yeah, that is super, super tricky. And like, even in my work, you know, coaching women around anxiety, it's, it's really, really hard to find that balance of, of, you know, acknowledging where you're at and, and sort of creating these like safe edges for yourself in your life. And then like knowing when to push past those, because it, it's really, it's really scary to, to figure that stuff out. I think it's, I'm, I'm really kind of just sitting with how you just described that feeling of, you know, the loneliness that you experience and, and that sort of being triggered by this feeling of something, something vital, something, you know, spirit, something connected, having left you. And, and it's just not, again, you know, there's been a couple of things you've said that have, have been maybe just a little different than, than what we hear in a really, really wonderful way. And I think that that's such a, I think that's something that not too many women could articulate. Um, but I think it's actually maybe more common than we realize. And I was even just the other day writing, um, some content for an Instagram post and just thinking about this idea of, you know, in birth in particular, like we bend, but we don't break. And and then the phrase that came to me was that, you know, we open, but, but we do not empty. And it's, it's mm-hmm. very interesting to think about really associating this, this separation with emptiness, with, with, with disconnection on some level, especially when, from what you described, you had an extremely connected and, and spiritual pregnancy, you know? Mm-hmm. I did for sure. I feel like I was, um, like I said, I was euphoric. Like I'm, when I was pregnant with him, I was just happy. Things didn't bother me as much. I just was very happy to be pregnant with him. Um, Mm -hmm. and when I found out I was pregnant with him, I was, you know, a little shocked. I had that initial first time mom who wasn't necessarily saying like, okay, I'm ready to have a baby. Can I do this? But then as time progressed, that, feeling of his presence and of it being right in the right time in my life. It just, it was a really special experience to have, but it did make 
the drop feels so much more intense because I was so high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you were, when you got to the point where you got pregnant with Rory, did you hope for or expect to have a similar pregnancy experience? I know that, you know, you were, it took a while to, to feel like you could be ready for the, the potentiality of another difficult postpartum period, but how, how were you feeling about, by the time you got to the point of conceiving, how were you feeling about going through this whole experience again? I was very excited to have that again. And I, you know, I told myself, you know, every pregnancy is different. Um, there's no guarantee that that's going to be the same experience, but I was hopeful. So when that didn't happen, it was very confusing. And it was Mm -hmm. a little bit, some alarms were going off for me Mm -hmm. when I didn't have that knowing that I had with, with Owen, it took us forever to find a name for Aurora. I mean, we just went back and forth for months upon months upon months. And it's because I just didn't feel like she was showing herself to me and what she was supposed to be named. Hmm. Hmm. And how did you interpret that? Um, I was like, this must be a girl <laughs> before we found out the gender. Yeah. I was like, this has to be a girl. This is probably cause I have a, I had a lot of fear around being a girl mom. Um, I was just nervous for that experience. I feel like girls are wild cards. They're either your best friend or you have a lot of, you know, clashing with your daughter. It just depends. And so I was fearful for that clash or that disconnection between me Mm. and my daughter. And so when I was having that disconnection in my pregnancy early, early on, I was like, okay, this must be a girl. Interesting. Mm. And then, um, as we went along in those early weeks, I got very, very ill with Aurora. I was, um, I was throwing up after sipping water. I mean, it was very, very hard to function. It gave me such an appreciation and respect for people with chronic illness mm-hmm. because I felt like I had absolutely no control over my body. Can be so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did not, I had some morning sickness with Owen, but it was bearable. And I felt like it was more of my body telling me I need to eat Mm. more consistently than it was. Like I can remember going into my OB at nine weeks and saying, I feel like my body's trying to reject this pregnancy. That's how violently I was throwing up. Um, and they were, they're like, no, you know, you just have high hormone levels and it can make some women sick. It'll dissipate. And that lasted for five months. Mm. And, um, I was hospital, you know, I had to go into the ER a couple of times for IVs. Um, but then at five months, it literally was like a switch flipped and I was fine. It never returned. Hmm. I'm sure that was a relief for the latter half of your pregnancy. (laughs) It was, I can, the doctors kept saying, it means you have a strong baby because they're producing these hormones that are making you sick, which means the pregnancy is going to stick. It's going to last. I know. I've always thought that's Um, such a crazy double-sided coin because that is, I mean, that is what they have proven, you know, is that your hormones are high and that's what's causing the nausea. But I feel like it's just so hard when you do, you know, have friends or walk with uh, clients who really have that incessant nausea for weeks and weeks and weeks and not everybody gets a relief with the first trimester there are people who have that throughout their whole pregnancy and you just kind of yeah and I can't imagine it was it was really horrible I mean it was so hard for me to function in my job it was hard for me to take care of my son I mean it built a lot of um 
a lot of intimacy in my marriage because, you know, he had to really step up and take care of a lot of things that he never had to before. And he had to take care of me too, because it was like I was ill. Hmm. I just love the way you put things. It's just, you know, I feel like so many people, the sentence would have been like, you know, it really was a, a hard time in our marriage. And I'm sure that it was, but to see that as this time that built intimacy and, and reliance and, you know, connection is, is a really, a really great and unique perspective. Did you feel like as the pregnancy went on, did you feel more connected to Aurora or did you sort of have, did that feeling of, of not really knowing who she was maintained throughout the pregnancy? And also, did you find out that she was a girl? Yes, we did find out she was a girl at 12 weeks in an ultrasound. Um, and once I, that kind of helped me because I'd had the intuition that she was a girl before that. So when that was verified, it was like, okay, you are having this connection that you had with Owen. You do have the intuition that you had before. You just need to understand that maybe it's a little different because you're a little distracted. You're working, you have your son and it's the second time around. So you're not as in tune to your body as you had the time to be with the first one. So Mm -hmm. that relieved a little bit. Um, and I'd say as time went on, it got, it got more joyful for me. Hmm. That's great. So you had the hmm. ultrasound at 12 weeks, found out she was a girl, and then how did the rest of the pregnancy go? Mm-hmm. So after the 12-week ultrasound, we had, I went back to the OB that I went to when I had my son, and I had a midwife to deliver him and take care of me through my pregnancy with him. She had retired. Um, so I was kind of fumbling around trying to find a practitioner and I found one and he saw me at nine weeks and we discussed the nausea. Um, and then I came back in with my 12 week ultrasound and I was still sick. And then I came back at 17 weeks and I was still sick and I never could see him. He was always busy. And like I said, I just had this feeling that it wasn't, there's, it wasn't right that I was so ill and, um, they couldn't get me in with the doctor. And that's when I decided to switch um, care providers. And I went into a town about 30 minutes north of us and found another doctor who had midwife bedside manner, but she was an MD. Mm. And that was a really great experience. Um, I had another, I had another anatomy scan. I had one with the original doctor and then I had another one. And as you know, that's where they check, you know, all the things, the heart, like the sex, the baby's growth, legs, arms, the toes, make sure everything's in place. Mm -hmm. And I tell you that because Rory was a birth diagnosis of, you know, she arrived with Down syndrome and it wasn't diagnosed in my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had multiple, multiple ultrasounds leading up to her delivery. So that's why I point out that she had the, the two very detailed ultrasound and then she had multiple, um, you know, leading up to her delivery. Mm -hmm. So you had no idea. No, I had absolutely, I didn't, my OB didn't, nobody had any idea that she, you know, she came with something a little extra. Mm. So, so you feel this, you know, growing sense of joy and connection throughout your pregnancy. You are, but you're, did you sort of still feel like a little unsure of why you had been so sick or did you kind of dismiss those feelings eventually? Once the sickness subsided at five months and after discussing it with, you know, my doctor so many times, 
I just chalked it up to what they said that it was, you know, female baby, the hormones were really high, my body was responding differently, it wasn't anything to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I go back and I nit- nitpick that pregnancy, um, there was times that I felt like I was like having heart palpitations. Now that could be from the throwing up so much, mm-hmm. um, dehydration and things like that. But there was just a couple things that were a little bit off. Um, none that I would say are specific to a T21 pregnancy because those pregnancies are all different, just like any pregnancy is different. Um, so I don't think that you can say that there's symptoms of carrying a baby with Down right. syndrome unless mm-hmm. they're very specific very specific symptoms that are typically caught in an ultrasound, like high drops or something like that. Hmm. Interesting. So tell us about, tell us about Rory's birth and tell us what those first moments were like when you, when she was born. Um, her birth was very hard. Um, I went into labor seven days early, just like I did with my son. Um, I was asleep and I just woke up and looked at my phone. It was like 2 a.m., no pain. Um, and then 30 minutes later, I started to get back pain. So I got up and walked into the bathroom and I timed it out and I woke my husband up and said, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm in labor. And uh, he had to get our son to daycare. It was like four in the morning. So he stayed home and my mom drove me to the hospital in the town that's 30 minutes north of us. And then he arrived shortly after. So everything was normal. Um, she came really fast. Um, I have the way that I can describe it is Aurora happened to me, not because of me. Mm. Um, my son took a lot of time, you know, I had to work him out. And then with Rory, she just, she just overtook me and like came, Mm. um, I had very little time to get an epidural. So when she came out, um, she has a skin tag on her neck and they put her on my chest and I really didn't get to see her because you know, they rub the baby off. And a nurse came over and started like pulling at her neck and said, we're calling a, a, um, pediatrician in to look at this. And they took her. So I didn't get to like hold her and look at her after she was delivered. And did they and give they any, took her any explanation lady. for that? Were you confused by that statement or that choice? Well, I saw the skin tag. Mm-hmm. So I just, assu- I just assumed like, okay, they want to make sure that's okay. Because there was no, I had no other reason to think anything was wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And so they took her and laid her on the warming station and a pediatrician came in. I'm still on the table. And just to give you a layout of the room, I'm on the table. My husband is to my right. My mom is to my right. My OB is still helping me through the delivering of the placenta and then the nurses and the doctor are with the baby on the warming station. I actually had a photographer in the room too. She was on the other side of the room mm. and the pediatrician, I'm looking at her and she steps to the right and she says, this baby has T21. And I just remember seeing the photographer just kind of drop her camera down. And then my OB turn around and say, what? And I, Evan and I were just silent and she goes, this baby has T21. She has down syndrome. And then they, another doctor walked in like immediately and they stood there and they argued back and forth. No, she doesn't. Yes, she does. No, she doesn't. Then my OB turned around and said, you need to leave and give her her baby. Hmm. And then I got Rory back 
and they put her in my arms and I got to see her eyes and I saw it. And I looked at my husband and I said, you know, she does, she looks like she has Down syndrome. And of course he was like, no, she doesn't. She doesn't, you know, they would have caught it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, the day started to unfold (laughs) and it was a really, really hard day. Um, you know, I held her for hours and I just kept trying to talk the doctor out of her perceived diagnosis. I was in complete denial, even though I saw it as soon as they they handed her to me. Um, I was pulling up pictures of myself and my husband as babies. Um, I was pulling up pictures of my son. I was going through my pregnancy. You know, I changed all my beauty products, um, to organic. I, um, you know, I did all the things I ate. Well, I didn't consume caffeine. I took prenatals for months prior to conception. I, you know, I slept well, I exercised, you know, I went through all the things Mm -hmm. and that's not what causes trisomy 21. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's three different types. I don't know if you're familiar with the three different types, but there's mosaic translocational and T21. T21 is the most common and it's a random occurrence. Um, there's nothing that you do to cause it and there's nothing that you could have done to prevent it. Mm-hmm. And then same for mosaic. Um, it's more rare. It's basically when the 21st chromosome doesn't attach to everything in the child's makeup, it attaches to different parts of the child. So the best way I can describe that is if you see a ladder and it, the 21st chromosome is three times on rung 20 and rung 50 and rung 100, but the rest are typical like mine and yours. Mm. And then translocational is the hereditary that it's passed from the parents. Mm. Um, so after I'm, you know, incessantly trying to convince them that they're incorrect, um, they come in, the original doctor, the original pediatrician comes back in and um, says, you know, can I speak freely? And I said, no, I would like everybody to leave the room. And so everybody left the room and she sat down and, um, she said, we suspect that your daughter has down syndrome. And she actually started to cry and I cried and she held me while I cried. And they said, you know, with down syndrome, there is, um, a high likelihood of your baby having holes in her heart. So we're going to transfer you to a larger hospital so they can do a cardio echogram. Um, and so, they're like the next morning we're going to discharge you and then admit her to this new hospital. Mm. So that night, um, as you can imagine, I wasn't really, I was so concerned. Something about the postpartum is I kept telling everyone it was like, I was so afraid that I was going to have postpartum more so because of this diagnosis. I kept saying I had postpartum with my son. Like everybody needs to know this. We need to prepare for this. I kept trying to tell them because I knew there was no time for that. You know, I just, I knew because of what her needs were going to be, that there was no time for me not to have it together. Mm -hmm. And so I was really, really concerned about falling apart and I needed everybody to know how important that was. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, after that, a nurse came in later that evening and was like, you know, we think you should take something to go to sleep. And, um, I didn't want to take it illogically (laughs) because I said, you know, if I take this, then I'm going to nurse her and she's going to be like slow moving and maybe sleepy. And they're going to think she has down syndrome. That's, you know, that was my irrational thought in that moment. I mean, I share that story because her response to me was hard to hear at that time. So if there is a nurse who's working um, in a situation like this, maybe, you know, stay aware, but she's like, she was very blunt and said, your baby has down syndrome. It doesn't matter if you take this or not. 
And there was no solid diagnosis at that point. And it was so new that I just felt like that was really harsh and hard to Mm. hear. Um, So I just say that. So if there is somebody who's an OB or a midwife or a nurse um, to just be gentle. And even if you know that something's happening, maybe that parent is not ready to hear that yet. And so deliver that news in a more gentle way, if at all possible. Um, So the next day we got transferred. And she had the cardio echogram. So she was a day old and she laid on my chest as they scanned her heart. And then they came in a few hours later. And by the grace of God, she did not have um, large holes that had to be repaired. Mm. I think it's 50% of babies who are born with trisomy 21 go into heart surgery by three months old. So we we were very lucky that that wasn't Rory's story. And then it was just a day of specialists, you know, the genetics... Uh, the pediatric plastics, the pediatrician, um, the cardiologist, they just all kept coming in back to back to back. And this was uh, less than 24 hours after she was born. Mm. So it was kind of quick. Um, but that was what it looked like when we had her. And they confirmed that day, the diagnosis of T21. They confirmed the next day we had a rapid response blood Mm -hmm. test. Um, They took her blood the day she was born, and 48 hours later, we got the results. Hmm. And between the moment of her birth and the the time that you officially got that diagnosis, did you feel like you had become more open to this possibility, or were you still, still feeling like it was something that you were we're fighting against? Well, I think it was, I was in a state of Mm -hmm. shock, um, for the first 24 hours. And then as time went on, um, I felt like it got a little bit easier. So when we went, a lot of my feelings looking back had a lot to do with how she was presented to me. I mean, there was a lot of, I'm sorry. There was a lot of tears um, and there was a lot of talking about Down syndrome and not talking about Aurora when she was born. So when we had her at that original hospital, I just felt like I was never introduced to my daughter. I was introduced to her diagnosis and her diagnosis at the time was scary, Mm. you know? So there was just this like shock that I was in at that point that I kind of was like quiet and just watching everything around me. And bewildered by what they were telling me because, you know, you, you carry this expectation of who your child's going to be typically long before you're even pregnant, but then it intensifies when you're pregnant and, you know, like you're imagining all the experiences you're going to have with them. And one thing that stands out to me is, you know, when they gave us this diagnosis and my friend who was the photographer was in the room and my mom and Evan, and I was having an emotional response. I was like, crying and she's in my arms. I was like, who's going to love her outside of our family? You know, who's she, she's, there's not going to be a wedding day. You know, how crazy is that on the day that your daughter's born, you're already mourning the loss of a possible wedding day. Now, looking back with the knowledge I have now, that wasn't a fair feeling to have because who's to say that she won't experience that love right. in her life. You know, that's something that I've come to understand now that I understand more about her diagnosis. But with the information I had at the time, that was a real loss that I was Mm -hmm. suffering in that moment. Um, 
you know, I was sad about potentially not having conversations over coffee with my daughter in her thirties, you know, about her children and all these things. Now that is a true loss. My daughter's not going to have children. So, you know, you mourn the loss of grandchildren, but to have that experience so soon into her little life, that's a really heavy Mm. thing to go through on the day of your child's birth. So I think like if the practitioners can remember, like introduce the child first, then the diagnosis. I mean, nobody said, look how beautiful she is. What is her name? This is her weight. You know, none of that was discussed when she was born. And then, you know, the nursing staff to be so direct and harsh, they weren't remembering that that diagnosis was stealing everything I had dreamed about for 29 years about having a daughter. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want that to be confirmed. And I was afraid that that sleeping pill was going to help confirm that, even though that was completely illogical. But mm. it's just remembering all of that when you're, you're caring for somebody who gets an unexpected birth diagnosis. Absolutely. <sighs> I know we um, had a guest on the show who shared about her, or her son getting an autism diagnosis. And one of the things she said really resonated um, when listening to you kind of talk is it's not that she doesn't have hope for where he will be and the things that he will experience in life. But she does get to have the feeling that hearing that diagnosis meant those things will look different than mm-hmm. maybe just a, a yes. normal projection. Like none of us can control what happens in our life or our kid's life or who they end up being or what their personality is. But you can't, you know, when this is your life and your story, you can say like, I am in a moment of extreme grief or mourning of quote unquote normal, mm-hmm. yeah. whatever it is, whatever those dreams are. Yeah. I think and that I- that, it's so important that you hold space for that for yourself and that people caring for you also do that too. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's something that if you don't stop to think about, think about it in great detail as an outsider, as somebody who's not living it, um, it's easy to not see that that's right. what's going on, yeah. you know? And I think grief is the key word. There was a lot of grief and it wasn't that I didn't love the baby that I had or anything like that. It was that I was mourning the baby that I lost. And that's a real experience. And that's a a very tricky thing to say, because that can be offensive to some people because there are people who truly lost a physical child. And I, and I totally respect that and have so much love in my heart for those people. But you also, when you deliver a baby that you weren't expecting, that comes with the heaviness that a special needs diagnosis can come with, there is a loss of that child that you thought was going to arrive. And yeah. that's real. And you, you have to let that go or you're never going to accept what you've yeah, received. And, and Amanda, I mean, I have, I have lost a child and I just, I can't resonate more with what you're saying. I think that, you know, it, it even really comes back to what we talk with so many women about these, you know, about holding grief with other emotions. And I think that, you know, so many women who maybe experience traumatic birth or who have a cesarean birth or, you know, these things that a lot of culture tells us, like, just be grateful that you have a healthy, happy baby or that you're alive, you know, like things could be worse is essentially the message. Um, and ultimately, yes. like you can be grateful that you, that you have Aurora, you can be grateful for your life. You can be grateful that, you know, your baby is alive and that you are alive and, and all of these things and yet still experience profound grief. And these two experiences make, they make room for each other. It's us that don't make room for them, you know? Yeah. Or the people who are surrounding you don't make room for them. They think it's 
very black and white and it's not a black and white experience. Yeah. Yeah, man. I just, so I think something I've come back to from our earlier conversation, you, you use the word surrender and you asked me, you know, how I felt if I was in a state of shock and that shock did continue. And I would say that I dealt with the grief and the shock for, I think it was about five months until I was ready to like publicly share about her diagnosis. Um, but something that, you know, stands out to me is when I first had her and we got transitioned to that second hospital, my husband went home because we wanted to keep my son's routine as normal as possible. And we didn't want him to have any idea that there was something different about his sister's arrival because these are going to be lifetime Mm -hmm. memories and we wanted them to be joyful. So we really had to be cognizant of framing that for him Mm -hmm. well. And so he went home, kept his routine normal. And I stayed with Aurora by myself that night while we waited on the results. And then Evan came back the next day. But that night, you know, I held her and just like spoke life over her that whole night and then laid her down and I got on my knees and I just gave, gave it up. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't ask you to change her diagnosis. I accept the child that she is. I accept what you've given me, but I just beg you to equip me to take Mm -hmm. this role. Um, because I didn't feel equipped in that moment to handle what was to come. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that was such an important moment in me being able to get to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Um, because it was just a verbal outward acceptance of what was, and it was, it goes back to what we talked about with the postpartum. When you fight what is, you make it so much more challenging. And so I just, out of the gate was like, okay, this is who she is. I accept her for who she is. And I just ask that you equipped me to handle the special, um, care that comes with this special child. Mm-hmm. What? Like, Oh man, <laughs> it's just hearing, hearing you share it that way is just, I think such a profound acknowledgement of just what we were just talking about, like acknowledging the ways that you were grieving and the the lack that you sensed in yourself, certainly in like not knowing that this was, you know, going to be the case before she was born and not having that time to prepare and to research and to do all the things that any person would do if they, you know, found out during their pregnancy that, you know, that their child would be born with, with T21 or, or any other, any other diagnosis. Um, and, and then also like, just really, really accepting that this is, this is the gift and this is the path that has been chosen for you. And that you're equipped in it. I mean, if I wouldn't have had that experience with Owen, I wouldn't have known that I needed to let it go to be able to walk through Mm -hmm. this one because it was the resistance that caused the harm to me in my last experience. So just not repeating that pattern was so helpful to me. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wouldn't have suffered with the loneliness that I carried with him. So I just think that if you really pay attention, that you'll be able to see those lessons and that you're going to be able to do whatever you're faced with. I mean, not, that's not saying that it's easy. That's not saying that you're not going to have sadness and pain, but you're going to have all the tools you need to make it through it. Yeah. And, and, and even in the moments where you really truly feel like you don't have the tools, you will still have the presence to, to just be, and to just accept that, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. this is your life and this is a, a good life. And this is, I mean, it's just really, 
it's really um, powerful to hear to hear you share. What has your postpartum journey been like with her? Is you said Rory is fourteen months now? Is that right? She's fourteen months, and it's crazy to say, but I never suffered from postpartum depression mm-hmm. after having her, um, which I think is just a pure miracle. Honestly, um, I was sad for sure for a long, you know, for five months because of her diagnosis, but there's a very big difference in hormonal um, hormonal postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and sadness. There's a difference. And I was able to identify that difference. Um, so no, I did not have that with her. I did struggle with, you know, looking back and trying to figure out why this happened and what I did to cause it. But like I said, once I learned more about Down syndrome, that dissipated, And then I would say like the second or third thing that was really hard was everyone else's opinion of Mm her Um, and what their lack of knowledge would then make their opinion of me. So I struggled with that for a while, like presenting her to the Mm -hmm. world. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, motherhood and, and parenthood is already so rife with you know, the judgments and assumptions of others and and what they're projecting onto us and expecting from us and assuming about us. And, you know, that would, it would just be turned up to 11 in, in your situation. That's got to be really hard. It really was. Yeah. Do you still feel that way in terms of maybe even if, if you feel more at peace with that, do you still feel that coming at you from, from other, other parents or other people? Yes, I do. Um, I have times that it's not as bad. Um, it, it just depends. It depends on the other person's response to her. You know, if I get, um, if I catch a weirdness from them, then the anxiety arises. But if I don't, I no longer get bothered by the, there's a couple different ways people handle it. Some people stare at her sometimes. Um, some people will just obsessively say how pretty she is because they don't know what to say. Um, and then some people are odd, you know, like they just, they're just, you get that energy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but so I used to bother me at first, but now it doesn't bother me as much because I know her and I know what she's capable of and I know how wonderful she is. Whereas before she was a stranger Mm -hmm. to me, you know, so their opinion was heavier than my perception of her at that time. But now that I know her so well and love her deeply, you know, like it's doesn't, it doesn't phase me as much unless there's some really hard interactions. And we've had a couple hard interactions and it's usually, um, culturally when somebody doesn't understand her diagnosis because of the way that their culture Mm -hmm. handles it. Um, that's when I've had my hardest interactions. Yeah. Hmm. So what has the, the family dynamic been like in, you know, thinking of your, your husband, um, your older son, how everyone relates to each other now that she's here? I feel like we're just a typical family. I really don't feel like it's changed our dynamic too much. I mean, our days look different than what a, you know, family with typical children. We have therapies, four therapies a week. Um, she sees a specialist once a year. So that's a little bit different. Um, but other than that, we function the same way we did with our son. We've made the decision not to tell our son about her diagnosis. Um, he, he was four when she was born. We didn't think he'd be able to grasp the concept of it. And we wanted him to fall in love with her as she is and not label her mm-hmm. to him. 
So that's something as he gets older, we're going to have to address, you know, most likely when he's in the public school system, um, we don't want somebody else to deliver that news in a way that mm-hmm. would be hurtful to him. But we wanted him to have a strong knowing of who his sister was before we explained her before diagnosis Before filtering to him. through that. Um, my yeah. husband, yes, yeah. Um, my husband and I have come so much closer through Aurora. Um, like I said, the postpartum was really hard on our marriage. Um, it was almost like he didn't know where his place was because I was doing it all so much and just felt like nobody else could do it like I could. Um, so there was this like separateness that kind of came into the Mm -hmm. picture with Owen. And then we worked our way back and that's why we were open to, to the second child. But then when we, we went through such a, and I'm going to use the word traumatic, traumatic experience together that only we could truly understand the feelings of, and then the way he responded to me, it built so much, um, it built so much between us. And something that I I want to say that I felt like was a huge win of the second hospital is they did not let us leave the hospital until we spoke to a grief Mm -hmm. counselor. And he was, that grief counselor was amazing. I mean, he told Evan exactly what he needed to do. He explained how a woman's mind works and how his actions when we got home were going to be the story that I carry for the rest of my life. And that if he went home and he didn't have the right behavior, that he was going to make this so much worse than it needed to be. And I feel like he took that to heart and he really, um, he really cared for me and he was extremely open about his own emotions and he was very vulnerable with me, which isn't, you know, always typical of a man, especially when they experience sadness, they usually close up. So I just felt like it, it built a lot of bridges between oh, us to have her. That is not something that uh, partners are hearing every day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hello. Uh, you know, and your situation was unique. I think. But at the same time, I think that there's so little preparation for partners when it comes to postpartum transitions and, and what, you know, the what the mother is going to mm-hmm. need. And, you know, whether, whether that approach works for every man is, you know, maybe who knows, but, but at the same time, just like this, this level of awareness that like how I show up in this time, I I love how you put that, like, is going to, this is going to be the script that you're going to replay for, you know, for the rest of the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. And man, I, I've certainly experienced that, you know, my, my postpartum transition with my first child was really difficult. And, you know, my partner, neither of us knew how to show up for each other. Um, But yeah, it's despite years and years of hard work and subsequent postpartum periods that went very differently, that imprinted on me in a significant way. It does. And I, I mean, from my experience with Owen and the disconnect that we experienced, there was fear of that happening again. So, and I think for, I think for men to expect my husband, I can say specifically is he's a fixer. And I think that, um, counselor did exactly what Evan needed. He just was like, tell me what to do to fix this. It's probably what he was screaming out in his mind. And this man literally gave him step by step. This is what you need to do when you get home for yourself, for your wife, for your family. And I feel like outside of the surrender that I told you about that I did personally, um, that was key to our success. Like 
me surrendering and then this gentleman giving us Mm. very direct steps of what to do next. (sighs) That is an incredible resource, I feel like. You know, and I want to say for people listening, maybe you have don't know much about uh, T21 or diagnoses and kind of how those come. Obviously, Amanda has shared a lot that hers was a, su- a surprise diagnosis because as she had kind of alluded to, most people um, are going to find that out at ultrasound or if they have any genetic testing. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, we are in, in 2018 in, in the United States, it is rare for someone to be surprised by this diagnosis. And so I want to also just say with greater mm-hmm. compassion, it's very difficult um, to find things out at, at time of birth. I think we now live in this um, kind of highly technology technological society where we kind of find these things out and you get time to process. It doesn't change the amount of grieving. It doesn't change the, the amount of sadness, or pre- but it does kind of change the preparation and kind of, you know, I, I have been able to support women who are having babies to T21 and they get to have a plan. They get to have an approach. And a lot of it is the things that Amanda have shared. I've had women who say like, it's very important to me that you acknowledge like my baby and not her diagnosis. It's important to me that if she's, you know, he or she is stable, we don't have to go straight to medicalization. We don't have to go straight to t- testing that we get to just have time with our baby. And, you know, I want, I'm hoping, you know, by Amanda sharing her story that people can be more aware, like she said, who provide care for pe- women who might have surprise yeah. diagnoses, but also, you know, if you are out there and this was your experience, that there's someone else who's kind of experienced that specific type of trauma as well. Yeah. And just the permission to, to allow this to be what it is and to, to, you know, to hold that tension of grief and gratitude and to, to realize that those can coexist and nobody can tell you differently. Amanda, as we're wrapping up, is there any one thing that you would want to share with our listeners about your story and then just about what you would want to impart to any mother, regardless of her, the particulars of her journey? Yeah, for sure. Um, there is still happiness in our life. There was a family motto that we came up with that is the good life Mm -hmm. isn't over. So just because we received this diagnosis doesn't mean that we don't have good days ahead of us. Um, so I want to say that to anybody who might be receiving some information that they never thought was going to be their life, you still have happiness ahead of you and just hold on to hope for that. Um, a resource that I could not have lived without is the down syndrome Mm -hmm. diagnostic network. Jen Jacobs is an angel. If you, um, want to go and learn anything about it, just go look up the DSDN. And then if you want to check out um, Rory's life and our story, you can follow us on Instagram at Rory Blake is great. That's Rory Blake is great. Okay, awesome. on well, we'll share links to, to your Instagram account and also to um, the, the resource that you shared on our show notes so that people can easily check those out. And we cannot wait to share this episode. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your story and just all of the the vulnerability and wisdom that comes with it. Okay, I yeah. really appreciate it. And everyone, you can also connect with us on Instagram. We have lots of exciting stuff that happens over there with our community. Um, many, many wonderful women that are engaging with us every day. So it's a, a great place to to connect and have conversations and be inspired. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care, if you are pregnant, 
planning on becoming pregnant or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show. 